2: Hello and welcome back to The Midpoint. My guest today has worn many hats over his 56 years. His bio leads with dad, cook and pianist. But you can also add economist, former cabinet minister, broadcaster, author and even dancer that list. But most of us know Ed Balls as a Labour politician. He was Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer from 2011 to 2015 and served in the UK Cabinet as Secretary of State for Children, Schools and Families. Although he isn't active in politics now, he's just started co-hosting a new podcast called Political Currency with former Chancellor and his one-time political rival, George Osborne. Ed is also married to Labour MP and current Shadow Secretary of State, Yvette Cooper, so I'm sure there's still plenty of politics discussed at home. After his stint on Strictly Come Dancing in 2016, Ed has also been a more frequent face on our TV screens, presenting Good Morning Britain, Travels in Trumpland and Inside the Care Crisis. Dementia care was something he highlighted in the latter. And with it predicted that one million people will be diagnosed with dementia by 2025, we're also taking on brain health today and talking to psychiatrist Kimberly Wilson. She's the author of How to Build a Healthy Brain. So we're going to be talking about what we can do to safeguard our grey matter. But firstly, let's meet Ed. Ed Balls, welcome to The Midpoint. How are you?
1: Very good to be with you. Great, thank you.
2: We did a show earlier in the year about rugby and, uh, well, essentially it's a rugby show but we talk about all sorts of nonsense and afterwards in the green room we had a little chat and you were talking about your kids about to go off and do their thing and we started comparing Empty Nest experiences and I thought, well, here's somebody who should come on the midpoint. Um, But then... In kind of researching, getting ready to talk to you today, I realised there are so many things actually um, that are interesting about you in this period of life, not least the fact you've done this amazing pivot from frontline politics to media darling. Not an easy thing to do. As you sit here now and you kind of look back over the last 10, 15 years, can you kind of believe what you're doing in your life now from whence you came?
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned the um, children leaving home because we are teaching on the edge of um, a next big step forward. Our youngest daughter goes to university tomorrow morning. So the house is full of all of her baggage to go and we're sort of dealing with, you know, feels like a big transition. Mm. Uh, But more broadly, no. If you told me back in 2015 that I would uh, climb Kilimanjaro with Little Mix (laughs) and do a... um, salt are on television with a 27-year-old world Russian professional dance champion, or spend two months in a pandemic with Mary Berry in a kitchen, or end up presenting Good Morning Britain uh, on breakfast television. No, I wouldn't have believed any of that. Although, on the other hand, if you told me Donald Trump would become President of the United States, I wouldn't have believed that either. So I kind of feel like it's been a pretty wild eight years and... uh, I've just been a small part of that big wildness.
2: Yeah, but you've said yes to things. And I think that is something that I certainly, the people I speak to on this podcast who are getting the most out of midlife, (laughs) it's because they're, they're positive about things and they're saying yes and not focusing on the things that they can't do anymore. Was there a moment when, you know, you, you lost your seat and you were looking at the future, having been steeped in uh, whether it was academia or then politics, and they're quite institutionalised things, aren't they? You know, and you've got structure in those kinds of jobs and you've got people who will take care of that structure for you. Was there ever a feeling of, of, of slight helplessness and kind of, a, I don't know, I don't know who I am, I don't know what I am, or did you immediately have a sense of the excitement that was to come? I think...
1: In 2015, when I lost my seat, which was like really unexpected for me, I think for everybody. Mm. And by that time, I had quite a lot of preparation for this moment. I mean, to the extent that... um I've been having a midlife crisis. I dated to 2010 rather than 2015 because we'd been in government for, for 13 years. It was totally all-consuming. And then we um, we lost the election in 2010. And suddenly, from being a cabinet minister, I was um, in opposition with much less responsibility, much less um, pressure, and a slight feeling of, well, what does my life mean from here on? And I started to make some choices, which I'd never had the time to do before that. So... I ran the marathon three times, the London Marathon for two charities. And I started having piano lessons and I sort of decided to to embrace doing things I hadn't had time to do before or which I'd always wanted to do. And each of them was a sort of all happened in sort of slightly odd and weird ways. But once you get into to it, um, it's quite fun. And, you know, I've not in my midlife crisis, I've not kind of canoed across Africa or bought a motorbike or um, gone off and had kind of wild times in Ibiza. But I have done a whole load of things which I want to grab and do while I can. And slight sense within the family that I I have to keep upping the ante, thinking of the next thing, which they'll say, you're really going to do that? I think one of my best moments for saying yes was um, after I had done Strictly, Um, So I was suddenly catapulted into this different different world. And I then started to do some television. And I had a call, actually it was from my agent. So by this point I had an agent, which I'd never had before. And the agent said, we've had a ridiculous request from the BBC, which we think you should say no to. They were always telling me to say no to all sorts of crazy things. But they said, say no to this one. They said, it's the Queen's 92nd birthday. The BBC at the last minute, I think quite hurriedly, are doing a special concert at the Royal Albert Hall to be transmitted live, on BBC1 and they would like you with Frank Skinner and Harry Hill um, to learn to play the banjo in the next 2 weeks and then play when I'm cleaning windows with 40 members of the George Formby society and we think you should say no because it doesn't fit in any way anything you've ever done in your life and we think it was like you know terrible idea and I thought well why would I say no to that I had said no a few months before also on their advice I was asked whether I'd like to be teen angel in the touring show of Greece, (laughs) singing Beauty School (laughs) Dropout. And I can't sing. And I said, no. And then... The, the touring show hired Jimmy Osmond. So, you know, <laughs>
2: wow, you're, me I or mean, Jimmy Osmond. Yeah, I can but, see but, exactly, you uh, know, you're I two of a what, kind.
1: <laughs> so I had said no to that and then they presented me with this thing and I thought I'd always wanted to play the banjo yeah. and my dad and brother and me had watched quite a lot of George Formby when we were little. We loved the films and so I had lessons for two weeks from this brilliant teacher and turned up and... I've seen the pictures, song. so I
0: know you did
1: um, it. It was just <laughs> amazing. And do you know what was really special about it afterwards? Because we were waiting to go out for the um, for the encore. And the, I was with Her Majesty the Queen, who I'd met lots and lots of times in my old world. So she, you know, it was, it was sort of slightly odd for her. Prince Charles was also there, um, now our king. And he said, Ed Balls, he said, what on earth are you doing? And I didn't have an answer. But then the Queen said that um when she was a small girl in the um the early 40s during the war, um George Formby, who played a very important role in, revi- in keeping our spirits up in the toughest times in the Blitz, would also come into the palace, in Buckingham Palace, and play the banjo for her and her sister Margaret. Dad was a great fan. And so it was incredibly moving for her to hear these songs and see all these people playing it for her. And um, so every now and then you say yes to something, even though you advise not to. I mean, I have not a scintilla of regret for saying that. It was such such a special evening. We were waiting around to um, go out. And Frank Skinner was talking to the producers and then they kind of called us to go forward. And It was the three of us pretty much and then the Queen coming after us. I was still slightly recovering from the fact that I'd stood on Kylie Minogue's dress and caused a slight tear. So I was sort of slightly on the back. <laughs> Did front. she know? So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. looked to be daggers. Sting was quite, <laughs> and Sting was annoyed at me as well. So, what oh you my mean, gosh. Kylie Minogue's dress. Anyway, so we move forward, um, but the Queen can't move forward because Frank Skinner is lagging behind talking to the producers. And so I turned and said, Frank, We've got to go on. And then Her Majesty, our late Queen, yelled... Oi, Frank! Come on! And this, and he ran forward. The monarch had just instructed him to get on the stage, and I've never ever seen anybody move so fast <laughs> in my life. Amazing! Yeah, so
2: the family realises that they're just they are going with this. Obviously, you know your kids aren't em- embarrassed by anything, or they're, oh, they're
1: definitely embarrassed. I think I think their view, uh, like my view, was always dads should be embarrassing. Their view was that sometimes I overachieve on that front. And I think (laughs) my two oldest kids liked Strictly. Our youngest daughter um, found it much more stressful. She was a bit too young to go to the live shows because there was like a legal rule. Mm. Um, For a year, I was banned from going to any school events or parents evenings because it was just too embarrassing for me to be seen. And then when I was finally allowed, it was interesting. When I was um, a cabinet minister, I was only allowed to go to parents' evenings um, in casual clothes. Because if I wore a suit, it made me look like, you know, the politician, the education secretary, whereas this then flipped after Strictly. And I was told I was only allowed to go to school events in a suit because if I went in casual clothes, it was a bit too Strictly. So, um, but, yeah, no, they, but no glitter def-
2: leg warmers. Absolutely not. And no, no, n- no, no, no lame, no, no animal print.
1: <laughs> I'd like to think that they're slightly, they're quietly proud of some of the things. Um, I
2: think the they things. will
1: be. But my, my latest incarnation of the madness was that I've just, um, debuted as a drummer in a band. Um, we had our debut two weeks ago. I had a text message about three months ago from Robert Peston, um, former BBC political and economics editor, now ITV Supremo, who said he was just talking to two friends of his and they were going to form a band, but, um, he didn't have a drummer and he knew that I had played before. I've never had a lesson. And so we spent, um, Two months. Rehearsing in a studio in Camden, and then the guitarist's brother-in-law lived next door to a guy who organised the York Rise Street Festival, and said they had a slot 3pm on the main stage at this street party, and would we like to play? So we debuted two weekends ago. Um, is that going to
2: go anywhere? Has it got legs? Do you think?
1: Well, I don't know. It's sort of it's sort of post-punk. So we do <laughs> Blondie, The Who, um, Teenage Kicks, The Undertones. I mean, Robert, our encore is the Sex Pistols. I mean, it's such a great song, Robert. <laughs> (laughs) Peston our lead singer singing I am an anarchist I am the Antichrist I mean you've got to see it to believe it and my job was basically to stay in time and we call ourselves centrist dad um which our kids thought was like really really bad name why why, why would you why would you call it that and so I had to under sufferance they all agreed to come
2: it feels like all of this everything you've just said there over the last five or six minutes you kind of need an audience you need to perform it's inside you
1: well it's funny isn't it because I look politics is also um, a, a form of performance and um and in 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 politics you are always being a version of yourself and actually that's quite hard because when you get the sort of the abuse and the knocks that's about you or your family and um and you have to learn to put on you know a outward looking um, version of yourself because you have to have a certain degree of steeliness or thick skin, but it's always you. Whereas I think the change for me since 2015 and doing, um, doing strictly in particular, but some of the other things as well, it's a different kind of performance, which I've never experienced in my life where you, you put yourself to one side and you become the character. So I learned very quickly on strictly that if I was being me, I mean, I remember the first night, the live show standing there and. And I was in a suit I and mean, I had a backdrop of Westminster Bridge and they say dancing the waltz, Ed Balls and his partner, Katia Jones, and just thinking, why, what, 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 what am I doing? And because it was me and it, why was I going to do this? And what I realised I had to do was, um, you know, become the mask or, you know, a a Prince Charming or a Zoolander model or, you know, a, a Korean pop star and, and learning to, which was what all performers do in that entertainment world, they sort of put themselves aside Mm -hmm. and assume a character. And actually that was a new thing and quite liberating. So had you not
2: done, when you were were at Oxford, did a PPE, did you do any theatre or performing at all?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. I, um... Yvette was um, very much into amateur dramatics. I did a little bit. I played the violin. I played a little bit of very kind of um, sporadic music. But no, that sort of performance I'd never done. I think the thing which I've learned, and there's a a style of performance which is about clowning and and it has a sort of degree of campness to it. And I think probably there's always been an aspect of that in my life, but I just, I'd never realised that's what it was. And I certainly, so if I went on a visit Um, when I was the cabinet minister for children. There's nothing I like more than messy play Mm. with four-year-olds in a children's centre. And the way I would rationalise it was that this would relax the parents who would then chat to me about important issues. But Mm. actually, it was really fun. Mm. And the cameras always... Liked it and enjoyed it. When I was doing... Um,
2: clowning, past- just, just an interject, clowning and performance. I can think of a certain recent prime minister who really went for that style.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, I think he did. And, 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 and that was partly why he, over years, succeeded. Yeah. And the thing which you fundamentally realise is that there's more to being prime minister than being a clown, mm. um, you know, you had to have some other attributes, um, in ter- you know, around your ability to make decisions and stick to a plan and galvanise other people. But but it's very much an important part of it.
2: And that performance, if you like, and that way of connecting with people, kind of came after the initial the realisation almost that you had as a politician to connect in some other way, and you it wasn't you couldn't just be dry explaining policy. You had to kind of do something which made people see you
1: as a human. I think that's right, and so so. I remember doing the the Paso Doble and being told, you've got to be macho. And Katia said, you've got to be macho and I did the rehearsal on the Friday in front of the producers, and they all fell about laughing. It was my most macho I'd ever done in my life, and they said it was the most camp Paso Doble anybody has ever done on the show, and it was so frustrating. Why couldn't I get beyond this? And I spent the whole day trying to work out what my character was. I wanted to be Adam Ant, because I thought that might work for me, and then I tried to be the father in The Incredibles, but I could never quite find the character. But um, one of the things I've often said in the years afterwards... People would people say we always knew when you were in politics you were a politician, but now it's great to see you've become a human being, and that is such a worrying thing to me. Mm. I mean, I know exactly what they mean, but the truth is. The ability, to, the, the the opportunity to step outside the mm-hmm. prism of politics and then be a more authentic version of you or yeah. to be able to perform. But it's, it's, it's bad news for politics if people don't see well, politicians I, as human. I
2: always remember watching Gordon Brown leave Downing Street with Sarah and their children and... I suddenly had this r- whole different perspective on Gordon Brown. I saw Gordon Brown as a father. I saw Gordon Brown as a husband in a way that I, you know, I'd never seen. And there were some shots of pictures the kids had put up in his. And I thought, oh, why had you not shown us this side of yourself before? I saw a, the human being in him because he was such a good politician, obviously, in terms of you know whatever your party politics are. But I really felt like I knew him better as a person in that moment. But
1: that, but that, but that is such you know you get to the heart of such a dilemma mm. for people in politics. I mean, Yvette and I were the first ever married couple to be in the cabinet. Um, we knew that this was quite unpopular. People thought it was really weird, you know. What do they talk about at home? They've got children. Are they, are they making the children be politicians as well? But we had made a decision very early on that our children would never be part of our political story because it was too exposing for them. And I remember our 11-year-old, um, oldest, when she was going to secondary school, saying that she was so pleased this was how it was because when she walks across the playground, she wants to be her first rather than the children of us. And there are are no photos anywhere of our children with us from the day they were born other than the the birth picture because we felt that they hadn't chosen this world and it was too exposing for them and especially with me and Yvette being with cabinet ministers. If if you're the prime minister, that is like on spades. And um, Gordon Brown and Sarah made a decision that they had two young sons under 11. And they wanted to protect them from all of that. And what actually happened was, um, because I was part of the conversation um, with Sarah, she said, we must give them one memory of this life they've lived, a public memory. So they made a conscious decision for the children to walk down Downing Street with their mum and dad for those photos. So there would always be pictures which they could look back to remember their life in Downing Street. But until that moment we didn't know um, they existed
2: well we knew they existed we, but
1: we didn't we did. know them did we at all and and that
2: and that is you know yeah, dilemma as you said what say. should you do as a, yeah. as a
1: father there i mean i think it, the problem is if you allow your children to become part, part of your story. political story then when things go wrong in their lives hmm. then you Let don't have them. any defense no. and we were always able to say to editors you can't print that because there's no public interest in that
2: your family, as you mentioned before, your youngest daughter's about to go off to university. We we, we catch you on the eve of that. Um, very much the empty nesters you and Yvette will be. You know, How are you both, because you're dealing with this midlife, you keep calling it a crisis in a tongue-in-cheek way, you, you're dealing with this midlife by oh, no, no, opportunities. No, I'm loving it. It's yeah, the
1: best thing that's ever happened.
2: You're absolutely loving it. You're oh, doing amazing gosh. things. Yvette is still very much you know, in the, in the heart of Westminster. She's going in and doing the, the jobs you used to do and she's staying late for votes and she's doing all that, does she ever kind of go, oh, it's all right for you and you're dancing and your piano playing and, you know, is there any part of her that is a bit resentful of the freedom that you've found? Or is she still very wedded to the the public service aspect of the job?
1: I think you'd have to ask her. But the answer is I think she is um, often really jealous of it because I think it's relentless. And she's been there for so long and opposition is hard. And, you know, it's a different phase now since... um, last autumn, but the period from 2016 through to 2020 was, was was a terrible, divisive, angry, nasty period and bad things happened and, you know, in a very personal way, in Yvette's case, two different um, people who served um, custodial sentences for, for abuse against her. So um, not things which, which I think people talk about enough, but um, a terrible time. And I think that she is very motivated by the job she does. And, you know, there's no doubt being in government was the best thing I ever did in my life, and it will never be as good and as hard and as difficult and as worthwhile. So there's a part of me which is hugely jealous of people who have that opportunity. But in the same way as as I envy the opportunity for public service, especially in government, which who knows what will happen, but she's waited for again for a long time. She's definitely jealous of, of ha- how I live. I think she. Look, the, the nature of politics is that you always have to plan 10 years ahead to be good at it and you always have to know that today could be your last day and you always have to know that that is not in your control and whether as a member of the cabinet or whether she's a member of parliament is decided by you know, other people. It's a tough world. So you always have to have, you, you can never just assume things are going to carry on. I'm like a prime example of that. But then you look at people like Harriet Harman uh who is who is still there playing a hugely important public service role into her into her late 70s uh, now there are there are there are people who um, who allow the nature of their public service to evolve and some to stay in the House of Commons. And so I don't know.
2: And we need that I, experience, don't we? You know, as a we society. Do. We can't we, just have people kind of, you know, falling away in their
1: early 50s all the time. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I think you're having a pop at me there. But actually if you look if you think of the list of people David Cameron, George Osborne, Douglas Alexander is now making a comeback, David Miliband, lots of people who are of that generation. As you say We all did fall by the wayside. Yvette's turned out to be one of the great uh, survivors. I don't know um, what she will do, but my hunch is that she will stay in the House of Commons as long as she can and allow the nature of how she serves to evolve. I don't think she'd want to go to the Lords. I think she'd want to stay in the Commons, but I can't quite see Yvette. I mean, you know, some great job came along fine, but it would have to be about kind of... um, the public realm. I don't think she would want to go off, and she she won't she, she won't follow my path.
2: Did when you um, sit down in the evening and you know have your uh, meal together, if that's possible, whose conversation kind of you know takes priority? Is it you learning some new incredible skill, appearing on some TV show, or does she come home and offload kind of you know a difficult day of, of coming up with policy for the next Labour Party manifesto?
1: Well, I th- I think one of the strengths of um, of our relationship partnership is that for a very long time we've understood each other's worlds and and that means that you both know when something is really important and could engage and talk about the important thing you know um, together on the level but also you know when something isn't so important and actually you ought to sort of focus on the family so we were very good at understanding on a Saturday when we had young children if one of us had to drop everything and go to work that was fine but if it was like you know Gordon Brown or Tony Blair being ridiculous that we were also good at saying to the other I think you shouldn't do that because actually the kids are more important so there's always been that kind of understanding of priority so the answer to your question is if there was something big Yvette was worrying about that's what we talk about.
2: Mm. Is there anything she's asked you not to do?
1: What she asked me not to do. I mean, what we have not done is things um, together, Mister and so Mrs on ice we We've been asked, <laughs> and she just says, "No, really, no, really, no." So, th- so those kind of things we haven't done. I think I don't think I think what you get to learn in in politics uh, in a way, but then when you move into this new world, is you have to know where the line is, and then you have to know how to lead into it. And some people are risk averse and they don't lean into the line. And some people are um, more risk loving and will lean. I'm a leaner, but I know where the line is. And every now and then I will ring a vet to to check. So um, when I was filming the Trumpland programme for the BBC, it was very immersive and experienced to understand. Uh, And every now and then they would surprise things. Um, And so I knew I was going to be tasered. And actually, I didn't speak to about on that one because there wasn't time. But before that, the only time I said no, you asked about saying no earlier, they said to me, in order to understand what it's really like at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's club, we were going to this huge jamboree of a thousand Trump supporters, um, and I was going to this spa in Palm Beach beforehand, and they said, we think you should have um, Botox in order to to understand the life. And if I'm honest with you, I didn't know what it was. I honestly didn't know. So I said, right. Um, explained to me what it is and they said well you know it's like an injection but it goes you know it goes in a couple of weeks and so I then I said okay so I rang a vet and I rang my agent and said I've got half an hour they want me to do Botox and actually both of them said you just have to trust your judgment and where the line is and I'm not going to say no but just be really sure and i wanted to kind of be a good sport and i didn't want to undermine everything so we actually went into the sh- into the thing and i'm on the couch with this big sweaty surgeon um and and i say they say to me it'll be it'll be going in two weeks and he said no it's more like six months and i said oh and i said and you know will it help me tonight in Mar a lago and he said to be honest you won't see anything for 48 hours and i said do you think i need it he said absolutely not and i said well i'm really sorry I'm just not going to do this and I said and the director looked at me like what are you doing? I said I'm really sorry I just know this is too much good for you and um, <laughs> so and we, and we stopped it and they were annoyed at me for an hour and in the end I had to have a spray tan to. I'm kind of sure compensate. you've had
2: people who are a lot more annoyed at you in your political career than I the I
1: producer I know but, 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 but that is in the end I think the you point you had a spray that, yeah. tan
2: to compromise did you just say?
1: Yeah, we, we they, they well, had that, to film Something
2: that's an everyday experience. I know, on Strictly, I so. know,
1: and it was. Although you know, when I was on Strictly, because you can choose your shade, I always used to go for like Skegness April, um, <laughs> but in in Palm Beach, it was like it was like Marbella August. It was a very deep shade. But um, so um, so I did that. I, I, I threw that to them as a sop. So every now, and then, I, I think what vet and I do is give each other the confidence to make those judgments which in those moments without a, telling each other what to do.
2: Which, whatever you're doing in midlife, I think is a really good recipe for success in any relationship, isn't it? At any stage, but especially in midlife when one person might want to be trying something new and pivoting and, and having new experiences.
1: Yeah, and but the thing is, uh, quite a lot of things I've done have been on my own, but they've not been a choice not to do them with a vet. Mm. And I think the only part of the midlife I'm really pleased not to have experienced is that that need to to push away Mm. um, and to break away and to try and find you know I've never been seeking a new life what I've been seeking to do is to do things which were fun or from which I learn at the moment I'm having conducting lessons because I am um, conducting the BBC Singers Um, in a concert in Norwich Cathedral and *St Martin in the Fields in the autumn Uh, it's a concert of Herbert Howell's music in November and I'm the presenter but they said to me would you like to um, conduct a couple of pieces and so brilliant conductor Nick Chalmers is teaching me and it's just like an incredible thing to be able to conduct one of the best choirs in Britain or the world and to learn to do that and that sort of sense of Kind of pushing boundaries and trying new things and learning to stand in front of these professionals and sort of direct them it's amazing and um you know a vet will come and watch she's not part of it, but it's not um it's not a break away from our life together. It's just another dimension for me,
2: but I think it's having the confidence isn't it to do that i think and the other person knowing that it's it's okay, you know you're kind of like coming back you know you're not going away permanently it's just this is what i'd like to do it's not necessarily what you want to do but that doesn't mean that i have to leave the relationship to do it exactly and, exactly and the other person needs to have that surety and feel that they're going to still I mean, be the, there, the,
1: you're there this is going to sound completely bonkers because you know you, you make you sound like i've had the most ridiculous september ever but last weekend for the first time in my life i sailed across the channel my son um has just got his yacht master qualification and i've kind of got a coastal skipper and we sailed we left the hamble by southampton at 8:30 at night and arrived at Cherbourg on Saturday afternoon at four o'clock, went through the night with two other guys and came back the next day and had some big wins. And it was, it was amazing. Uh, Yvette would not in any way want to do that. I mean, that, that, that I think that, that she, the thought horrifies her, but she knows we know what we're doing. And that, that's another example, I think of, um, I mean, she's very supportive of it. It's but trust. she wouldn't want to come.
2: It's trust as well though, isn't no. it? And um, so uh, this leads me nicely actually onto what I think could become potentially a big vote winner for, for both big parties in the next general election is how they set out their offerings for midlife women in particular. And I know Annalise Dodds has already talked about this earlier in the year, quite comprehensively. Um, we've heard Rishi Sunak saying that, you know, that they want to get more women off long-term sickness back into the workplace. Something like £7 billion has been lost from the economy post-Covid Um from those women who were previously working. And for many reasons, they're not working. Long-term sickness, not able to get those appointments in the NHS, confidence to do with menopause. And I was reading some of the reasons behind this to do with the kind of geographical flexibility of these women as well, because they're not just in certain areas, you know. Um, Do you think that midlife women are potentially the people who could swing this election one way or the other?
1: Well, so the thing which we absolutely know is... um, that people in midlife and then later life are, are voters. You know, it's always a struggle to get um, people in their 20s to vote. The turnout is always lower. But when you're talking about people in their late 40s, 50s, into their 60s and 70s, they absolutely vote. Secondly, some of the big challenges which we face um, I think the NHS will be central to the next election because you know the, the recovery from COVID is hard, but the NHS going into COVID was in a weakened state. And lots of the things which are more broadly, as you said, happening in our labour market now around people being able to get back into work are linked to whether the NHS is there for you. So there's some, some big issues which relate, but then there is also more particular uh, issues, which are, and, and I think the menopause is really interesting example where um, we're still in the foothills of having a proper conversation about what policy and employment should do to support people Um, because uh, I don't think most employers think about it, let alone talk about it, let alone do anything uh, about it and... um, What should they do? Far too many people struggle with deep complexity alone and... um, and it's it's hard and quite bewildering, but it's not easy, especially for somebody who is at that stage of their life, to 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 talk about it. Unless you provide a way in which these things can be raised within within the workplace, and then to start thinking about um, the you know the way that the working day is organised, the way in which the, the flexibility people have to work from home or from the office, the the wider support that mm. you might need, now, because not it's- only are those women are
2: experiencing the symptoms of the menopause, but they're often also carers at both ends of the spectrum in this squeeze middle, aren't they? In terms of parental care that they're having to, you know, their own parents, then they've got still got potentially young people around as well. So it's no wonder that so many of them just drop out of the of the workforce altogether, even though they might not want to if they're not given
1: that support. Exactly. Of but if if you go back thirty years ago, women were dropping out of the um the workforce. Because of uh, having children, and I don't think we are not every attitude is where it needs to be, but over my adult lifetime, there has been a sea change in the way in which we think about supporting women um, in work having children, and you know what is and isn't acceptable in terms of the way in which you know I remember in, in our twenties lots of friends who'd lost their jobs during pregnancy. I just think that, that we've moved on from, from that time where becoming pregnant was seen as a, you know, a problem for employers to move you out of the workforce. In terms of the older people caring for their elderly parents, the conversation has been happening now for 10, 15 years. I'm not sure whether policy has begun to Get his head around it to let alone the resources to um to as you said support that caring for older people at the home. we still as a society save billions of pounds by just assuming people would do incredibly intensive unpaid work. I saw that for a BBC series I did it was just so intense and difficult, but in the case of as you said, the menopause dimension within that doesn't doesn't even seem to be. Um, a mainstream conversation we've properly started. There have been some very, very important, brave people have talked about it and made documentaries. But is that yet something which um, government and society is probably gearing up to talk about. It still feels to me we're in the foothills of that um, conversation.
2: Well, yeah, we're in the foothills of it, but it could be, you know, potentially for whichever party wants to embrace that topic and talk directly to those voters with actual policies, you know, whether that's tax breaks for for caring for for elderly relatives, whether it's an incentivisation to get back to work because it's flexibility of the workplace, you know, whether it's making, you know, the prescription a little bit more straightforward for HRT and the information on that, all those things are tangible things that, that any party can get hold of. And they don't seem to be politically wedded to, you know, one ideology or another. Uh, not that there's necessarily clear ideology on either side. Let's leave that for a moment. But, but you know, that is an area for me, it seems that it's, it's a no-brainer, somebody to really get hold of those, those policies.
1: Well, I think, um, see, in my life these days, you know, I can't raise it around the shadow cabinet table. Um, in the way I used to be able to... I can I can say to Yvette, what's the conversation? But I'm not sure that she sees huge evidence of it.
2: Because it's too male, that environment? Do they not really have oh, a perspective? Yes, there I mean, plenty you know, of women in politics.
1: There are, and I think in the shadow cabinet anyway these days, the cabinet too, um, that there are a lot of um, women dealing with this issue behind the scenes, but I'm not sure whether there is... As I said, the conversation is still beginning. Mm. However... How could Good Morning Britain not be talking about it? So that is. Well, you are. Well, yeah, yeah, I I don't think I've had a discussion about um, policy, the election, the menopause yet on Good Morning Britain, but I'm going to talk to Maybe you need
2: to. Maybe you need I'm going to talk to
1: Susanna Reid. And then, of course, you know, George Osborne and I have started a new podcast. Yes, well, I'm going to get to that. I I wonder whether, you know, I'm going to say to George Osborne, you know, what do you think?
2: The uh, the podcast, which I'm I'm sure you're going to be, you know, in a football sense, trying to be at the top of the table with. The rest is politics, which has former uh, colleague Alastair Campbell and of course uh, Rory Stewart um, going head to head with each other. There was one of their episodes. Rory very briefly mentioned that the importance of getting, you know, a right. policy right for... But it didn't, again, it got kind of kicked into the long grass, you know, and they didn't really come up with anything or talk about anything in oh, great I think detail. I
1: so a, a very, very important challenge.
2: Well, get that on your agenda.
1: And um, let's be honest, being top of the table, it's not the most important thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not
2: the most important thing. Go on then, tell us a little bit more about the podcast and why you said yes to that one. It's, it's called um, Political Currency.
1: It is. And... Yeah. Um, Straight after the election in 2015, I got asked by Panorama, actually Michael Portillo sent me a text saying, would I like to make a programme with him about losing... And I said, absolutely not. I was very, very much not, not ready for that. Um, but then. Is that, ITV, the, is that
2: the political equivalent of doing a Pizza Hut advert if you're Gareth Southgate after you're in '96? I, is it kind of too soon?
1: <laughs> I it was definitely too soon, too soon. But I think at least with um, Gareth Southgate, there could have been some humour in it. I'm not sure there's even <laughs> any humour in this one. So that was just all pretty hideous. But then the ITV said, would I do election night t- 2017 with George Osborne? And I did. And actually, it was, it was good. And we were both willing to be open. Open and reflective. And we spent last year doing, we did that in 2019 for ITV. We spent a year with Andrew Neil doing a Sunday programme. And both of us are um, willing to be open and reflective and critical. And, you know, we disagree on lots of things, but we've also been there opposite each other, but also on the inside when difficult decisions were being made, when mistakes were being made. And so we thought that the Andrew Neil programme wasn't happening this year with Channel 4 maybe we should do this just as a conversation between ourselves, um, which can be a bit about reflecting on the past, but also trying to make that relevant to current politics.
2: And you do you come together in a studio to do this? You don't do this remotely well, or does the, it depend
1: on work? with George Osborne. is He's got so many jobs.
2: He wears a lot of hats, doesn't he?
1: I know, so it's quite hard to pin him down. So the second week I was in London, but he was in, I think, Abu Dhabi, or it could have right. been Singapore. Um, so this week I think we're back in... Uh, the same place. He's got again. a lot of
2: jobs, but Ed, how many instruments is he learning? This is the question that people want to know. I know. So, has he done you know, strictly, it's all life's a Does trade Does he off. sail
1: the Channel? Exactly. I think he's. Um, is he? Has he
2: played with Robert Peston in the middle of a street in a, a street I, festival? You know.
1: I've told him you got to work on your midlife crisis, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to, you've <laughs> he. Who just got of, remarried, hasn't of, he? he? I know, but and that he's got is, young. That, he's now
2: got a younger I, family as well, so he's dealing that, with
1: you know. There's a sort of slightly more complicated version of. Yeah, you've kept your
2: private life a bit more straightforward in that respect, haven't <laughs> I, I I have. He's dealing with two ends of the spectrum with kids. Can you imagine going back to little kids right now?
1: Well, I mean, the, I think the, the obvious answer that is no. <laughs> but I mean, on on one level, it would be fabulous because it's because I think I would be so much better second time round. I mean, we we, we did well the first time round, and we were me and Yvette were kind of a, big, a team. But it was so hard when. You are making your way in your careers in your 30s, sort of... It's the same for everybody, It doesn't
2: matter whether you're yeah. a politician or not. Everybody's juggling in the that early true. stages, aren't they? And you get to the... You know, my kids are both just on their A-levels, they're twins. And, you know, you, you kind of go, oh, I wish, I wish we'd slightly done this differently when, you know... Exactly. They were, because you know a lot more now, don't you? But you've had that important time in the last six, seven years. So I imagine from the empty nest point of view, that has been a lovely thing to be able to say, you know, they're flying off, but I was there in the nest.
1: That's true. I think also, actually, one, they don't actually go, do they? So both the two older ones have come back. And also, I think I thought that it would become less complicated as they Mm -hmm. got older. But actually, uh, their needs change, but they're still there and very real. And in terms of the, the, the kind of rewards of... The, what you can do together I mm. mean they are
2: sailing the channel. You know, they're,
1: they're enhanced so yeah. as I said sailing this weekend my son was in charge of a boat across the channel and me and a friend of mine were taking our instructions and it was amazing yeah. and that, that was very different from how it would have been 10-15 years ago when he was a, a little Tonka toy <laughs>
2: One of the other big issues, I think, in this next election, whenever that is, will, will be mental health, which is, you know, if you read certain reports post-pandemic, we're looking at a tsunami of issues coming our way that are not being dealt with. Um, and our guest today, our expert today, is Kimberly Wilson, who has written a book, How to Build a Healthy Brain. And the book explores ways of reducing stress and anxiety. She also um, has a podcast on BBC Sounds as well, which talks about all of this. So um, I'm going to bring Kimberly into our conversation <laughs> now, Ed. Uh, welcome to The Midpoint, Kimberly. Um Tell us a little bit about what your book has kind of uncovered and found and it sounds to me like Ed's doing a lot of good stuff in midlife to make sure his brain is... Uh, well, stress-free. I don't know. I can't. I can't kind of tell whether or not any of the stuff he's doing. If you're learning musical instruments and conducting orchestras, there's a certain amount of stress. But he's he's active and he's busy and he's positive and he's saying yes to things.
0: Um, where does your book go with this? Yeah. So the book really looks at the modifiable risk factors for dementia and you know long-term neurodegenerative illnesses. And when we say modifiable risk factors, what we're really talking about are the things that are within some of our controls. So a lot of the risk factors for things like dementia and Alzheimer's disease, which is a type of dementia are out of our control a little bit is about genes not as much as people think but you know some of it is about bad luck you know exposures to things that you can't control but a big proportion of our risk is really about the health and habits that we have particularly at midlife we consider midlife to be a really crucial point when it comes to thinking about protecting your brain health kind of future-proofing your brain health. So what are the kind
2: of things that people should be doing? Because everybody listening will be saying, tell me, tell me, I, you know, it's on my mind. I want to do
0: something. So there are considered to be 12 modifiable risk factors. Some will sound more modifiable than others. Um, so there are things that you can do around your kind of health risk. So diabetes, having obesity, hypertension, excessive alcohol consumption are all kind of key risk factors not doing enough physical activity smoking and then there are other kind of features like social isolation brain injury depression hearing loss exposure to air pollution those are kind of slightly less manageable but really we're thinking about you know a third of those risk factors are nutrition related so really trying to encourage people to eat a minimally processed uh, diet full of leafy green vegetables full of fiber omega 3 fatty acids fruits and vegetables those are the that are going to contain the key nutrients that will protect the brain and support the brain and the structures around it. And then physical activity, regular physical activity is probably the most robust thing that you can do to protect your brain health. Um, And so when we think about Alzheimer's disease and women have twice the risk of Alzheimer's compared to men, uh, in studies that have taken groups of older women with these risks for neurodegenerative diseases, split them into two groups, half do resistance training three times a week, and as a control, as a comparison, half will do maybe balance and stretching exercises. When they look at the brains of the resistance training women, they have fewer and smaller lesions the smaller and fewer areas of brain damage as a consequence of doing this resistance training So just, into Kimberly, mm. just to interrupt you there because I was I always thought that we had to do more resistance training to do with
2: things like prevention of osteoporosis obviously we want our skeleton to be supported so you know keeping it, it's much harder to keep your muscles mm-hmm. over the age of well, even 30 there's deterioration so there's
0: actual links to brain health as well from resistance Absolutely. training. Absolutely in these controlling wow. um, studies And it's really important because certainly when I was growing up, we were kind of discouraged. Women were discouraged from doing strength training because we didn't want to look bulky and we didn't want to kind of uh, put on too much muscle. But actually first of all that's all nonsense and secondly mm. um essentially what happens is that the same compounds the same chemicals and growth factors that are expressed to help keep your muscles strong cross over into the bloodstream and protect your brain cells as well so aerobic exercise is important as well to protect your uh, mm-hmm. the blood vessels but that combination of both aerobic and resistance training is one of the things that's really going to support your brain health long term Ed, how are you on
2: all of this? I mean, obviously, you move a lot these days. You do lots of different physical activity. Are you, are you mindful of how those things and your food intake is affecting your potential to have any kind of uh, dementia?
1: I think I'm very mindful, and that's partly because uh, my mum had dementia, which began in her um, mid-60s, and she's now in her mid-80s. So she has um, basically had 20 years of a slow vascular dementia deterioration and that's been you know a big part of our of our our lives and managing that and understanding that and supporting her and my dad through that and of course as a consequence you know it gets in into your own head and who knows to what extent this is about genetics but I think about that and um, I think about, uh, you know, am I trying to be as healthy as I can in terms of doing exercise and eating? I hadn't actually realised that resistance training was important. So that's kind of like a good positive. And I try and do, 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 do a crossword. If I'm honest with you, I think I also think seize the day, you know, embrace life. I think you know, I want to enjoy every opportunity I have to be with you know, our kids and to do new things, partly because we don't know how long we've got. And that's something which is slightly more tangible.
2: It is, but I also think as well, if you've got a seize the day mentality, you already, I think, are in a mindset of wanting to be able to move and be healthy. And then subliminally, you're making better life choices, you know, because you know, for example, that processed food, is not going to be the pathway to being able to move better and have it, you know. So, so it's almost like it's kind of a circular thing, isn't it? And actually, your mental health is—you have to have quite good, positive mental health if you're going to seize the day. People who are in a real fog aren't in a seize the day mentality, Kimberly. And that's another book you've written, Unprocessed, about how processed food affects uh, mental health mm. and and really is perhaps for you one of the most
0: important factors in the mental health crisis? I think one of the most important and certainly one of the most overlooked and it's really thinking about Well, starting at the baseline, your brain is the hungriest organ in the body. It is the biggest single contributor to your basal metabolic rate. So it's only 2% of your overall body mass, your body weight. But it's 20% of all of the energy that we're using right now is going to our brains. So it has this huge energy demand and it has a huge nutrient demand because of that. And it's a range of nutrients. There are some key ones that I talk about a lot, omega-3 fatty acids and iodine and choline, which are kind of structural. But then all of your neurotransmitters, we we talk about kind of serotonin and dopamine, all of those need nutrients in their manufacture. They need iron and phosphorus and vitamin C and various minerals. And so when you start from that vantage point, which is I have this incredibly important organ the thing that kind of defines my species from all of the others on the planet it is very very hungry and it has these very very particular nutritional requirements and then you look at the average diet that we're providing our brains with and there's a complete disparity so and we know that the higher our consumption of ultra processed foods the lower our nutritional status on vitamins A, a lot of the B vitamins, C, D, E, the omega-3s, and a range of minerals. So effectively, the higher your consumption, of ultra processed foods, the lower your nutritional status. So you might have a full belly, but you're gonna have a very hungry brain. And I think that's one of the key concerns that's really missed in part of the conversation. We have a beautiful and wonderful, important conversation about mental health, but we're missing, in a way that we don't miss it with physical health, we're missing the understanding that mental health relies on the health of a particular organ. And then we're missing the part of the conversation, which is how do we help people teach people, encourage people to protect the health of the organ that underlies these functions and features. And Ed, bringing this back to politics
2: again, it all feels it's so kind of linked, isn't it? You know, we talked before about the pressure on the NHS and, and those women who have dropped out of the workplace and sickness generally. And, you know, the amount of people who need mental health facilities now that just aren't there. It's, it's this education piece as well and providing... It's not just saying it, is it? It's also doing something about it because people will then say, well, food is very expensive. I don't know how i how am I supposed to eat these foods when I've got, you know, barely any money left at the end of the week to feed my family. It's It just feels like we've got to kind of go back to the start almost of all of this.
1: Well, I think you're right that the public education part of it is so important and there's things which we need to do to... Um, to improve the NHS. But a lot of this is about the decisions we take and understanding how to make good decisions. And it's a challenge for politics because politicians are always worried about sounding like- um, The nanny Being state. the sort of voice yeah. piece of the nanny state. But if you take the um, the pandemic, we had um, experts, people like Chris Whitty, explain things to us in very clear terms. And I think when, it, when it's the professionals and the experts, that works and what politics has got to do is create an environment in which we are able to listen to kind of experts talking to us and allowing the nanny state worry to push you away from having a conversation about what it is to live a good and healthy life is a big mistake for politics. I wonder whether um, we're certainly going through that phase at the moment, post-pandemic, after such an intense period of public health messaging. It's like the government stopped talking about it. Mm. But actually, maybe we need to, in a more long-term way, shift to a... I'm not saying that that necessarily requires daily press conferences at five o'clock, but uh, I do feel as though... The last chief medical officer I remember delivering a strong message about um, alcohol um, was a few years back now. And if you remember, in quite a... um, Sally Davis, quite a hardline way... It's an important conversation which um, we need to have. And government's job is to make sure that conversation is occurring.
2: Do you think, Kimberly, um, from what you've written and your research then, the one thing, if people are listening wanting to make one lifestyle change, that diet is the first place they should go regarding brain health in terms of prevention as much as cure?
0: Mm. Um, I think it would be a toss up between nutrition and and exercise, I suppose... It, so both, really. Yeah, really, um, and sleep. But essentially, it's about helping people to, to start as early as possible. You know, mental health, brain health is a long game. And, and differently to the way that we approach physical health, whether it's about aesthetics or wanting to improve some aspect of our, our strength capacity, you can do that in three months. You can do that in a year and see radical change. You can overhaul your complete, you know, physical appearance in a year. The thing about the brain is it's out of sight and out of mind. And so you really need to get people, you kind of need to make the brain kind of sexy and something. You need to get people to understand it's really important. You might not see the benefits in six months or a year, but actually what we're talking about is... 60-year-old you, 70-year-old you, still being sharp, still being able to engage in life, still being able to take care of yourself and being able to throw it forwards like that. And that absolutely, in, in real terms, starts at preconception. And we have actually terrible preconception healthcare information in the UK. So if we're talking about the brains we are building, that starts in utero and that starts at preconception. And we need to start work across the entire lifespan to improve the brain health of the UK.
1: It's a really interesting point, this. Uh, one of the things you learn in government is you have certain universal moments um, which are very powerful for delivering messages about um lifestyle. So at the birth of a child is a, a, a moment where mums can be talked to by health visitors about nutrition and vaccination and Taking up child benefit when your child first goes to school, there's a good reason why um, why banks want to engage with young people going to university because that's one of those lifestyle transition moments when people get married, when people retire. But actually, we're doing a podcast about midlife, and we've been talking about um, you know having a good or a bad midlife crisis. But actually, the point where you start to think about well, the second half of my life and how am I going to manage things, there isn't really a trigger moment. You know, we don't get a a form from the government or the GP saying, you're starting your midlife now, but actually a conversation about the right way to have a good midlife crisis or a bad one is quite an important conversation, which you're trying to do with the podcast. But mm. I think, you know, waiting Well, look, I'm happy to retiring. be the midlife
2: czar if that's what the government wants, whoever exactly. it is, you know, because, you know, I truly, truly... More, the midlife a, midwife. The, the more, <laughs> the more I, I've kind of, you know, nearly 100 episodes of this and talking to people about all aspects of health, you know, it does start before you get to the crisis. You know, it has to start before you get to the crisis point, doesn't it?
1: And when you get your bus passes too late, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I well, mean... But it's not
1: too late, but but you'd be better off starting earlier. Yeah,
2: it can be too late. And I think one of the big male health um, issues, which has affected our families, say, prostate cancer, for example, of course. you know, the 50 plus kind of, and actually in black men and Asian men can be earlier, even 45 years old. You know, it is it's much more prevalent in that age range. So there are certain things that are just absolutely more prevalent in the in that period.
1: And that is such an opportunity to grasp, if we were to grasp it. If public health the chief medical officer, the government were saying triggered by a moment which could be the point at which you have you know your first bowel cancer screening letter from your gp in your early 50s or whatever actually this is the start of a bigger conversation Mm. which is also going to talk about prostate cancer and your health and exercise and sleep and all those things Mm. and actually you know i think badging it as you know fire the starting gun on a good midlife crisis Mm. I know that might be slightly destabilising for some people, but, um, but but you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. It's, it, it's, it's the conversation we need to have. And, you know, it's certainly the case it's a conversation i've had with myself
2: yeah uh, kimberly thank you so much and best of luck with everything keep up the the good work you're doing you, you've got a show on bbc sounds as well that doesn't just discuss the brain does it no it does other things talk about the yeah. whole
0: relationship between the mind and the body yeah
2: so um if anybody's interested i will make sure that is in the description of this episode
0: thanks kimberly pleasure thank you
1: cheers kimberly
2: so do you you were kind of nodding on resistance training ed do you do a bit of resistance training <sighs>
1: I do do resistance training. As I said, I did three marathons in the, um, in my forties, um, for Action for Stammering Children and for WizKids, Disabled Children's Charity. And I kept the running up. And then, um, after the pandemic, I started playing five-a-side football. Um, and James Pennell, former cabinet minister, started a game on a Thursday evening. And then I got asked to do a charity game at Millwall. And I played the full 90 minutes and scored a great goal after 10 minutes. But my knee started to be painful at about 50 minutes. And I just, in sort of, you know, in my mind, I'm still really 25. So I plowed on, got to the end of the game and really messed up my knee, torn meniscus, worried I might have to um, stop, had all the NHS scans, started rehab. And it took me nine months. The GP said it's going to take you longer than you think, but stick with it. And I was out from the end of May to February. And then since February, I've been back playing every Thursday evening without a problem again. That was all about learning the importance of, as you said, joints, resistance, glutes that your knee depends upon, the ability of your your core and your hips and your pelvis and your mm, glutes and your to glutes support them. Yeah, yeah. And all of that. And I I think one of the things with the marathon and then with this, you learn a huge amount about your your, your body. Mm. And um, I didn't know it was going to help me with my with my fight to avoid um dementia. So that, that's like an added bonus. But um certainly uh, you know the engaging with that kind of kind of joint Mm. health and exercise I've found that to be I mean it, it saved my football career
2: <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and that it, for all of us who love sport you know that is just a joy to behold I think one of the great joys of midlife as a, as a woman with regards to the body and exercise and somebody who's always enjoyed it is actually it's understanding the functionality of everything and you know I love being fit and keeping fit and it's realising you know I'm not doing it at all for aesthetic reasons It's it's got so many great payoffs coming down the track you know so as well as the joys and the, and the hormonal uh, boosts you get you know when you do it now so Ed um, an inspiring chat I think anybody who is at, at all kind of thinking about you know how will midlife be and can it be as exciting can I do new things well unequivocally yes listening to Ed Balls and best of luck with your new podcast and everything else that's set to come
1: I just wait for the news that you've been appointed the midlife midwife <laughs> let's and hope the government gets on with the little,
2: it with a little TM for you there the, uh, trademarked by Ed Balls, take care
1: <laughs> cheers Gabby
2: Well, that was fascinating hearing Ed talk. uh, First of all, about what life was like as a political figure. But more than that, I loved his seize the day attitude now that he's freer to try new things in midlife. And our expert, Kimberly Wilson, excellent as well. Huge thanks to her. And from what she said, brain health is a long game, but it is never too early to start thinking about it. Prevention is always better than a cure. As ever, you can rate and review the show, which will help other people find it, and hit follow so that you never miss an episode I'll be back next Wednesday and I hope you can join me there. Bye-bye.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray five-in-one gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ,